0: We're we're doing a series called Acts of the Spirit, and uh, we are going through the Book of Acts through this series. And there are 28 chapters in the Book of Acts, and so it's going to take us quite a long time to get through it. And that's okay. We believe it's worth it. Um, So if you're going to follow along today, we're going to be about halfway through chapter five, uh, starting in verse 17. If you're going to use one of the Bibles that we have for you, it's on page 759. And what we said is that the author of this book of Acts. His name is Luke. Uh, He wrote another book before this one called The Gospel of Luke. I don't know if he named it that. It probably just got attributed to him. But that book was all about Jesus. You know, we we would expect that. It's a gospel, right? That book is all about Jesus and it, it records in an orderly fashion everything that Jesus did, everything that he most of the things that he said that were significant. Uh the, the 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 people that he left behind, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, all I mean, all the major events of his life. And then Luke writes a second book, and so we wouldn't misunderstand it, the second book is to be part two of the first book. So part one is Jesus and all that he started to do on earth, from his birth to his death and his resurrection. Part two is all about Jesus continuing in another body called the church. And so, guess what? You're among a church today. And, and so, we're not the church because the, this building has a steeple on it. We're not the church because we happen to meet on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. None of those things make us the church. What makes us the church is that we belong to Jesus. We're filled by Jesus. We're sent by Jesus to represent Jesus in everything that we do. And so we're gathered here this morning to talk about how we can do that better and how God might fill us and, and, and how we might celebrate all that God is doing in us and will do through us and ask him to do it again. And so if you're here this morning, I, I hope that you leave with that kind of mindset. So let me recap for you just where we've been. Um, if you remember, uh, Jesus goes to his people and he says, I have a mission for you. Wait for the Spirit. He's going to empower you to do everything that you're incapable of doing. and then they wait and pray, the spirit comes, and they start to go out on mission, and we see this incredible, miraculous work that God starts to do through this new people. They, they begin to do things and say things that they, they were just they didn't have the power to do before. and and, and everything's going along great up through like chapter two and three. I mean, there's just nothing stopping it. Nothing's in the way. And then all of a sudden, you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4, and now there's opposition. And in the last few weeks, we've been talking about the opposition that starts to come against God's people and his work in the world. And so a couple of weeks ago, Aaron shared about some of the opposition that started to come from the outside. And then last week, we talked about some of the opposition that started to come within the, the, the community itself, that there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And that they they were uh, filled not by the spirit of God but by the spirit of God's enemy, who's called Satan, to start to deceive people and 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 damage the integrity of the church to minimize its witness, so that people would go, no, no, you're you're this group of people, you're just like all the rest of us. There's nothing significant about you. And, and what we saw was that God is incredibly. We use the word vigilant about protecting the purity of His people. And He does so in a very drastic way with the, these couple, and they actually fall down dead because of their sin and their corruption, so that God can protect the witness of His people to continue going out. And that what we said is, if God is vigilant about sin, then that should lead us to be vigilant about sin as well. Both the sin that we see in our own hearts, and wanting to do business about it before God, as well as vigilant towards one another. That we, we are in every way our brother's keeper. We, we have been placed into one another's lives to be for each other, the presence of God that would point out areas that we need to grow and change and sometimes repent over. And that as we do that, God actually is doing a work among us. It's not a bad thing, it's actually a good thing. Because it leads the church then to be healthy and to grow and to be strong and to continue doing what God called it to do. And, and that's kind of what we saw at the very end of last week, is that the apostles, they start to go out and they start to heal people again. And they're, they're getting tremendous amount of notoriety, a tremendous amount of respect. People are even bringing their sick to them so that Peter, the, the kind of the lead apostle, that even his shadow might fall on some of them because the thought was if the shadow fell on them, that they might be healed. That's how much is going on in this community. It's because God was vigilant towards sin. So that, that's, that's where we left off. Today we're going to pick up in verse 17. You can follow along with us. Then, after, after all this is going on, then the high priest and his associates who were mem- members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. The Greek word there is something like righteous indignation. Now, you might be going, okay, why were they so, you know, ticked off at these guys? What, like, what was making them so, so angry, so jealous about what was going on? There's, there's something that you need to know about these guys called the Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple of God. They were the ones who maintained it and managed it and called people to it. And in Israel, the temple was where God lived. That's how you met with God. And that's where you got forgiveness of your sins. And that's where you went for healing. and Anything that had to do with meeting and, and, and getting an experience of the living God, you went to the temple for. And now there's this ragtag group of people that are going around healing everybody, saying that they're forgiving sins, and they're pointing to Jesus as the one that's doing it, all outside of the system that they've constructed. You see why they're a little bit jealous? Their job is now becoming obsolete. They're out of business if this continues to go on. And they understand that. And they're indignant over it because in their minds, God lives in the temple. That's where you go to him. And now suddenly, they're seeing a group of people that's saying, no, 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 you don't go to God. God has come to us. He's come to you. And you can experience him now where you live, not just where you go every once in a while. So they're jealous, obviously, over this. And so they arrested the apostles and they put him in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. So God hasn't forgotten about them. He brings them out for a purpose. And the angel says this, Go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. You can see where this is going, right? And when the high priest and the associates arrived, they called together the, the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found that no one was inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled. Yeah, I'll say, Right? They were at a total loss, wondering what, could, what would come of this. Then someone said to them, Look, these men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts and teaching the people again. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach anyone in this name, he said. Yet, you've filled with Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So not only are you telling people about Jesus, you're blaming us for killing him. And Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to the right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that these men be put out for a little while. So this this guy is well respected. What we're going to see is he has a pupil that's going to be very important to the book of Acts, and his name is Saul. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. In other words, we've seen these kind of guys before. This isn't the first would-be Messiah. Therefore... In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. And so they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. It's never worked before, so I'm not sure why they think it's going to work this time, but that's what they do. And then the apostles, they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. You see this pattern again, right? God does something amazing. He's doing great things through them, and then, bam, opposition comes against it. And then in the opposition, uh, God comes and he overcomes it. He he works out a way to get through it. And then the people, they they obey what God says because he always overcomes it and then tells them to do something else, right? And then they obey, and then in their obedience, they go and they meet opposition again. And then they call on the name of the Lord again. And in boldness, they go out and they continue to face this opposition. They continue to give him credit. God continues to do things. And they continue to ask him to do it again and again and again. I think the reason that this pattern is so obvious is because Luke's trying to tell us this is what the Christian life looks like. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So if you've seen this pattern in your life, where you're trusting God, opposition comes, God does something, you get out of it and you do it again, don't be surprised because this is the way that God works. If it's true in the beginning of the way that God works, it's going to be true now. And I I remember, I mean, for myself, um, when when I first came to faith, I, I confided in a friend of mine and I said, man, it seems like my life as a believer is harder than my life before I was one. You know? I mean, life was was terrible before I met Jesus. Don't get me wrong. There was no joy and there was no peace. There was none of those things. And I think because God was stripping them from me so that I might grab on to Him. But then my life afterwards, I'm like, now, now I seem to struggle with everything. Everything I do, there seems to be opposition towards. And yet in the midst of that opposition, I have joy and I have peace. And I have comfort, but I still struggle. And uh, my friend was wise enough to say that the reason that that's going on is because now you have an enemy who is God's enemy, who wants to deceive you into thinking that your life before you came to know this great God was better than the life you're now living. And that enemy of God now speaks to the old you to try to get you to live as you once did. And now there's this dual nature going on inside of you where you're a new creation and yet you have this old nature and you want to be rid of the old nature, but it keeps popping up all the time. Before you had the Spirit of God, you, 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 you didn't know anything but that one nature and so you just were led by the flesh all the time. Now you have the Spirit of God and, and the Spirit actually wants to do business with that old nature and you struggle. And not only that, but now there's a world system that goes along with God's enemy, that is ruled by the flesh, and they're all telling you to reject this God. And I'm like, man, this, the card seems stacked against me, right? He said, but yeah, but you have the living God living in you. And, and it's he who's greater than the one who's in the world that actually causes you to grow over time. But, so here's the question then. If that's true, what is it about these guys that continues to give them hope and continues to give them perseverance, even though this seems to be the pattern? Because these guys get, I mean, opposition's going to come again and again and again, and by now I'm thinking that these guys probably know it. What is it that gets them going, that keeps them moving forward, and particularly what is it about the message that they bear? that allows them to do that? See, and, and the answer to that question is the same answer to the question, why is it that these guys keep getting into so much trouble? The answers are one and the same. So, so we're going to try to answer that this morning. The first thing I think that's true about the message that they have, the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for them, is that this gospel is a gospel to be both lived and explained. And the, God, the, the, the good news of Jesus must always be both a message and a lifestyle. And if it's neither of those things or one or the other, it won't be the gospel. So I mean, think about why these guys were thrown into jail in the first place. If the apostles were just telling people about Jesus, but there was no power and no life change behind their message, then they would have been written off as fools. I mean, go ahead and talk about Jesus all you want, but if they don't see evidence that something's going on that's different from, from everybody else that claims to know something, then what power is there? On the other hand, if these apostles went around healing people but didn't attribute their healing to the resurrected Jesus, they probably would have been left alone because they, they would have been on the same wavelength as all the other people from the temple. The thing that made them both attractive to the people and a threat to the authorities is that they lived a life that demanded an explanation. And then they gave the explanation that this is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. It's by his name that all these things are occurring. And the combination of those things leads to both trouble and to change. So, I mean, one of the things I, I think about when I think about believers today, when I think about not just, I'm not just talking about our church, but as I look at the landscape of the church, at least in North America, is that I think we're often guilty of believing that the gospel is either only a message, or it's only a lifestyle. It's one or the other, but it's not both, at least not in our practice. So, one of the things that we do is we dialogue about some things, so I want to ask you this and get your responses. What do you think the result could be if the gospel that we believe is only a message but not a lifestyle. What's the potential danger? You think? Okay, we don't live it. So what? Okay, yeah. So we would be viewed as hypocrites, and and does the the message that we have it bear any power? Right. Yeah, there'd be no fruit, right? Yeah, why should anyone listen? Yeah. What else? What's that? Yeah, we wouldn't have completely changed hearts, right? Yeah. I mean, so, so we would be saying, in a sense, God has come to the earth to reign over a people And through that reign, they look different. That's our message. Jesus is our king. When we live under his authority, life should look different. If that's our message, but they see no difference, then it invalidates the message, right? Because they're going, where is the rule of this king that you claim to believe is now risen from the dead and living in you? I don't see it. I don't experience it. I don't taste it. It's a, it's a message without any substance to it, right? Okay, I'm, and we've probably seen that, right? I mean, I know that I've experienced a gospel that's been preached that way, that in a sense is a message without a life behind it. What's the danger the other way? Because I think for us, we spend a lot of time talking about the gospel as a lifestyle, right? And the kind of life that it produces in us. But what's the... What, what could be the result for us then if we talk about the gospel as a lifestyle but not a message? It's about us. How, how could it be about us then? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it comes from us and therefore it's dependent on us, right? And so there, there are times that we're going to feel great about that because we feel like we're doing things well. And there are times when we're gonna run into the, the wall of our limitations and we're not gonna feel so great about that. And we're gonna think it all depends on us and it's all about us. See if we don't remind ourselves of the message, then and if it's not God's activity that's doing it in us, the only party left is us, right? And that's not good news. Yeah, what else? What's that? Yeah, go ahead, James. Right. Yeah, so the explanation for our life is based on the rules that we follow, the moralistic principles that we attain to. So if somebody goes, yeah, you're a really good person, you go, yeah, I know, I get up and I pray. And uh, and I tithe. Uh, and I meet together with other Christians, and we pray, and we we hold each other accountable. You know, all these things are good things, right? But if if those are what define our life, then then our life is not empowered by the gospel. The the gospel, God's generosity leads us to be generous to our church and to the world. God's kindness to us leads us to be kind. His His pursuit of us leads us to pray. See, we don't do all those things to earn God's favor. We've gotten God's favor. That's the gospel. So we do these things. And that's the big difference. I mean, that's what you were trying to allude to, Ron, I think, is that if we get that backwards, then we look like every other people, every other religion, and there's nothing distinctive about us. See, the truth is the gospel is both a reality to be lived and a message to be re- proclaimed. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ when it's both. And so whatever side you think you might fall on in, in that equation, you know, we, we may be people that, that have no problem talking about Jesus, but maybe it's the living it out that, that troubles us, then maybe that's the area we need to focus in on and go, well, why isn't it that the gospel is leading me to live it out? For most of us, though, I think it's the other way around. I think we're trying really hard to live something called the Christian life, but we're not reminding ourselves daily of the gospel that makes it possible. And that's why the angel says this to, when he releases them from prison. He says, but during the night the angel of the Lord, he opened the doors of the jail, brought them out, and he said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people, here's, here's both sides, the full message of this new life. I love that the angel doesn't even have like a word for it. It's not called Christianity yet. He's like, this this thing that God's doing, whatever that is, tell people about it. And the angel lets them out of jail and he, he gives them this purpose in letting them out. And he describes it as this new life. In other words, go and tell them about the life that God is working among you today. Tell them about this message that changes now. It's not just a message for their eternity, although that's true. It's not just a message for someday called heaven, although that's important. Tell them about the rule and the reign of Jesus because he raised from the dead and he's now living in you. And then tell them about how you're able to share resources because of what God has done. Tell them about how you treat each other like family because that's what God did for you. Tell them how you have this great love for one another because Jesus' love is now inside of you. Tell them how God is uniting a diverse people that have almost nothing in common with one another because Jesus is what you have in common. And then tell them that this life that you're now experiencing each and every day is available to them. The reign of God has come to earth just as it is in heaven. So the church... I think we've been so focused on a gospel, a message that's divorced from reality that talks about the good news of Jesus as being a good news primarily about getting people out of hell. And listen, that's true and part of the gospel and needs to be part of the the declaration of what it means to know this good news. But we need to also preach a gospel that's breaking in today That heaven is coming here and that heaven is is a better reality now on earth because of Jesus than life without him. And that life without him now is hell. So we get to be a foretaste of heaven today rather than tell people about a reality that they've never seen anything of. I think part of the reason that people are so turned off to the gospel within the church is because they hear a message that they've never actually seen practiced. They've never seen a group of people wrap themselves around those who are lost and, and, and ununited to the Father and treat them as if they're the family of God, even though they're not. Because let me tell you, when that starts to happen for folks that have never experienced that kind of love before... The next question that they ask is, where does this love come from? And that's part of our responsibility too. It isn't just a point to us, but it's a point to Him, is to give Him glory for the life that He's now working in us. And so the angel says, if if you belong to Him, if you've been freed from jail, if you've been freed from sin and death, then stand in the courts and say so. Stand and tell people for the reason for the hope that's within you. And grow at the same time in your ability to give to give the reason with clarity and with conviction because the Gospel, it is the power of God to save. So are you growing in those areas? If, if we find that we're not, if we find that we're not living out the gospel and speaking it regularly, if we find that those things aren't coming together in the way that we live out our lives among our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-worker, then it's probably because we forgot the second thing that Luke shows us about the gospel, and that's that the gospel is either true or it's false. See, we live in a a day and age where you can't use those words. It's true some of the time. It may be true for you, but it's not true in the sense that it's true for everybody. In fact, the only true statement is that nothing is really true. And as long as you hold to that as the ultimate truth, then whatever truth you believe underneath that ultimate truth is fine by me. But just don't live it out in such a way that you expect me to believe a different ultimate truth, Right? To the, the thing that makes Peter so bold is that he personally believes everything that he's saying about Jesus is 100% true. I know that's a, like a big aha moment, right? I just did a, a wonder of Greek on you and suddenly like everything's coming together in a brand new way. Wow, he actually believes what he's saying. It doesn't sound profound, but, but listen to what he does. I mean, the religious leaders, they warn him to stop and then warn him to go, even upon threat of death. This is the same Peter that, that denied Jesus to a schoolgirl around a campfire three times. And, and now he is being charged by the entire elders who are ruling Israel. It doesn't get big, bigger in terms of the, the, the people that you could stand in front of to give an account for Jesus. And they're going, we need you to do two things. One, stop telling people about Jesus. Two, stop telling them that we're the ones that are responsible. And look at their response we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging on a tree. (laughs) I love that. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they're like, stop telling people about Jesus, and Peter's like, Jesus! <laughs> it's like my three-year-old, you know, when like, you're telling him not to do something, and he's like, don't touch that, and he's got his hand hovering over it, you know, he's like watching you. Don't do it. Don't you dare touch it. <laughs> Peter's not just trying to be defiant though. He's being defiant because he believes in what he's what he's been gripped by. And he's saying Jesus, this Jesus is both savior and lord and the proof of that that position that he has, the proof that he's really who he says he is, the proof that he rose from the dead in the first place is that repentance and forgiveness are now available to everyone. And the reason that the religious leaders are so jealous is because they can see that the message is bearing fruit. They can see people coming to faith in this Jesus and giving their lives to him. And it's resulting in a radical lifestyle that they're living. And this is to be true. It goes back to what it means to live and proclaim the Gospel. But you need to know that this reality is either true or it's not true. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men. You're like Way to be encouraging, Paul, right? That's an uplifting sermon. Don't we want to hear that? But apparently there were a group of of people that believed in Jesus. They believed in His teachings. They they were following after Him, and yet they were doubting His resurrection. And so Paul wants them to understand there is no following Jesus if He is not alive right now. And He's either alive or He's a dead man. If He's a dead man, do not follow Him. Do not... Try to live out his teachings. Don't think that you're somehow special or belong to God. You're still in your sins if that's the case. And so please know that if the gospel is not true, we aren't, Cultivate Church isn't some organization of goodwill. We are false witnesses about God and should be pitied and rejected if the resurrection is not. 100% true. And Jesus right now is living and reigning from a throne in heaven and empowering his people to live on his mission all day long, every day. See, there is no mix and match. I believe in God and try to do good things, but I don't really believe in Jesus' resurrection version of Christianity. If our faith is not in the resurrection of Jesus, then no matter how well-intentioned it might be, it is completely futile. And so you see, the gospel is either true or it's not. we're, We're left with no third option. There is no middle ground. But just so we wouldn't stay there, Paul goes on and he says this, Christ has indeed, he has indeed been raised from the dead And He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Him. It's true. It's true. Every word of it is true. Do you believe that, church? That Jesus was raised from the dead, that He has conquered sin and death for you, to forgive you of sins, and to adopt you into God's family forever. And that if you belong to this family, then you now have Personally experience the love of the Father and you are now witnesses of this life that Jesus gives you. See, it's an all or nothing thing. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He goes, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It cannot be moderately important. And so think of the implications for you, for your family, for your parenting, for your life as a student or as a, a, a coworker or as a boss. It changes everything if this is true. I mean, like, let that be the question that you think about all week. If this is true, what would I then do now? All week long, everything that you encounter, all the normal stuff that that, that that you run up against every single day of your life, if Jesus is raised from the dead and now living in me, what then now? I tell you, if you ask that question of yourself enough, you're going to see some radical changes in your life. One implication, I think, is that it would mean that, that we would go from this building, we would leave from this place believing that God is for us and that he's with us as we live and proclaim this good news. And that's why I love it, it's it's the non-believer that affirms this in the story. Did you catch that? It's it's the it's the Pharisee that convinces all the other religious leaders that, that that's exactly the case. This is what Gamaliel says. He goes in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is from human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God... Church, if, if, if what we're doing here is from the Creator of the universe, who, who died to cleanse you of sin and to fill you with His Spirit and to send you with a new power, if all that's true, then you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Do we believe that? That the mission of this Gospel, it cannot be stopped because God Himself is in it and for it and with us. Something I've noticed about myself is that I often believe this in my head that I have a message from God and that it's important for everyday life, but I live it and proclaim it as if it's a message from human origin. Do you do that? I want to encourage you to consider again the message that you've been given. See, And you'll know that you really believe that you have this message that changes everything, that is of eternal importance from God when the third thing happens. And that's the thing that is most crazy to us in this story, but it's the thing that they believe, I think, probably the closest and that the Gospel must be better news than our personal happiness. What leads me to say that about these guys? Well, If it's true, if the gospel is true, and it's a message to be lived and proclaimed, then it's true regardless of what happens to those who live and proclaim it. It's true irrespective of of what goes on in our lives as a result of it. And here's the thing. Many people, across this country especially, teach a gospel that claims to always lead to our personal comfort and happiness. So the message sounds like this. If you believe this, God will do this. If you're faithful in this area, God will bless you in this. Usually it's in the area of finances. And it's a really attractive message, right? I mean, it has has a lot of shine and a lot of polish to it. It would be really easy for me to preach it. And a lot of people would come running to that kind of message and in fact do. Listen to the story, though. These men are thrown into jail and flogged for being obedient to what God tells them to do. They didn't disobey. They weren't unfaithful, and so God's correcting them. They were faithful. The angel shows up, who I'm assuming didn't like the line of communication between him and God didn't get messed up along the way from heaven to the jail cell he comes in and he says, I'm letting you out. Go and proclaim Jesus in the temple courts. That's the instruction. And in faithfulness to the message of God, they go and they do that, and as a result, they face persecution and torment and disgrace and dishonor. How do you react when you're treated unjustly? How do you... Go about reconciling that. When you, in faith, try to do what you think God is calling you to do and you face adverse reaction and opposition for making a decision that you believe was faithful to God. Uh, If you're like me, you probably start to question them about that, right? And you get angry at those who are coming against you and opposed to you. And you long for justice to be done and for God to set things straight. And you're you're relieved when He does all those things. But what are they feeling? Not hatred. Not questioning. The apostles, when they leave the Sanhedrin, what are they doing? They're rejoicing. Because they have been counted worthy of disgrace for the name and then day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they sometimes preach about Jesus when it's convenient. They sometimes gather together when it fits their schedule. They, they sometimes... No, they never stop teaching and proclaiming this good news that Jesus is who He said He was. That He is the Christ. So... They're rejoicing. Okay, are they rejoicing because they were let go? No. Was it because they could have been killed, but they weren't? Doesn't seem to be, right? Why did they rejoice? They were worthy. Yeah, they were treated like Jesus. They were counted worthy of suffering disgrace, for the name. That is the name of Jesus. They've been counting worthy of him. What do you let me ask this then? Because this is a crazy idea, right? What would it what would cause a person to rejoice at being dishonored for the name of Jesus? You either got to be crazy or something else. I'm looking for the something else. If it's true, then it's r- true regardless of the outcome for me. Yeah. And there's there's got to be something in these guys that are going, th- th- this, however upside down it looks to me right now, I'm stuck in a jail cell. I'm before these authorities. I don't see the whole picture. And because I don't see the whole picture, but I've been given a picture of the next step, I'm just going to be faithful with the next step and trust that the master has the rest of the plan. Right? And so the suffering that they face, it isn't outside of God's care and understanding. It's actually part of it. That God's producing something through it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So they, and they were entrusting themselves to the spirit who's then filling them. we'll look at that in a second but yeah which is is totally backwards to the world right it's totally backwards because the world says as you gain notoriety for yourself as you gain a reputation as you gain status as you gain the favor of people you are blessed and that's true in the world jesus says those who are have good reputations and honor and respect, which that's suspect too with the disciples, right? Because they didn't start off great. But then their, their respect actually decreases over time. And Jesus said it's the downward trajectory that's the blessed one, not the upward one. Yeah, what else? I mean, what would cause people to do that? Yeah, I think of, I think of, you know, Paul when he says I count it all as loss, you know. Um, in, in comparison to what I've been given, everything else looks like lesser good news. And therefore I'm I'm able to actually give up control of it. See, if, if it's all we've got, then it's all we have to control. But if if we've been giving something greater, we can actually re- release control of the lesser things knowing that there's someone else that has greater control even over that. And the great thing is, God says, "If if if I have if I've even given you my own Son, if I've given you what's most precious to me. Will I not, along with Him, give you all things?" Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's the control is really in our own minds. Kurt, I think I saw your hand up. More real to them than even their present circumstances, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, of course, right. Um, I, I think there's something to that, and I think there's something too that they understood the weight of the name of the of, of the one whom they bore. You know, that that they weren't they weren't just representing themselves, and God was like coming alongside them once in a while. They were there as representatives of the King of the Universe. And because of that, they weren't afraid to speak the king's name, no matter what, right? Um, even I was thinking about that this week. Um, to, twice this week, I got asked, "What do you do for a living?" By people just you know, in in the world. And the, the first time, I, get, I I hadn't studied this message long enough yet, or God hadn't gotten through to me. But I, I, I mean, the the easy response obviously is pastor. I'm a pastor. Oh great! And that puts you on a certain trajectory in people's minds. What church do you, you know, pastor? Oh, it's over there on East Eastham Road. You know where Okay, yeah. Uh, what kind of church is it? You know, oh, it's Baptist church, or you know, we're we're Baptistic in our our you know what we do, and we're part of the Association of Churches, and and uh, oh, okay. And that's kind of the end of the conversation. It's a very easy conversation to have, in fact. Um, later on in the week, actually last night, I was invited to go out with my uh, a friend of mine who's my neighbor. Uh, to to go and see a, a college basketball game, and we went to dinner beforehand. And a bunch of guys that I haven't met before, but they're people that knew my my neighbor for a long period of time. And the inevitable question when you're getting to know somebody is what? What do you do, right? So um, so I'm, I'm sitting there. Okay, I have two options. One is I can go the easy route, and uh, and and I had I, I knew enough like through my friend that just talking about yourself as a pastor isn't going to open up a whole lot of relational doors with people. Um, In fact, okay, good, we'll see you next year at the next basketball game, okay? Don't get too close to Jay. He's a pastor, you know? (laughs) Um, And so so I said, okay, I'm going to go a different route. Here's what I do. Um, I help to organize a group of people, a community, Uh, to love their neighbors really well. Wait. You get paid for that? (laughs) Like, yeah, I know. There's, you know, there's some down, you know, there's some difficulties to the job, but overall it's a great job. So, and and I do it because this group of people is loved really well by Jesus. And so we try to learn how to love others really well because of Jesus and what he did for us. See, I... It's a different door, right? And it leads to what we're actually here for. And so then the question is, okay, what do you call that? (laughs) Well, that's called a pastor, and that's called the church. And you may have understood the church as something different from that, and if that's been your interpretation, I need to apologize for that because that's wrong. Well, we are the church because we've been sent by God to love our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers well. That's the reason that God has brought us into his family and to love one another really well. Now, I didn't get to say the, the whole rest of it, but that's what I'm thinking, and that's what I'm hoping the conversation leads to is a, a, a conversation about God and what he's done to make us his family, not just use the terms that people think they're already familiar with. See, we bear a name that is above every name. And so Jesus himself says, because you bear this name, if you're blessed because of righteousness to this name, because you're in the kingdom of heaven, blessed are those, who ins- uh, those of you who are insulted. Um, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things of you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about who the prophets were. They were men and women who were sent from God. And the reason that you're blessed when people say things about you is because there's something that, that's the same between you and the prophets. Do you know what that similarity is? It's that you belong to God. And, and, and the insults themselves prove that you belong to Jesus. And that should give us great Reason to rejoice. See, I I wear a wedding ring because I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife, and now you know I I don't get persecuted because of it. But the 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 ring is the sign of the covenant relationship that I have, and I want to talk about the relationship I have because I value the one who, who 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 who's partnered with me for all of life, and and. There's a there's a sharing of life because of this relationship where it's an under, understanding that I belong to her and she belongs to me. And, and this is the thing that I say about marriage all the time, so if I find up marrying any of you, this is what I'll say, that every marriage at the heart of it is one wedding and two funerals. And the reason I say that is because marriage itself is two people who are learning to die to themselves so that they might live more for the other person because that is a picture of the gospel. And the reason that marriage gets so off track is because you have two people that are in a relationship primarily for themselves. And that's not what marriage was designed to be. And in the same way, our marriage, because Jesus is both our king and our bridegroom, is that we would learn to live submitting ourselves to him because he submitted himself for us. And so if we're asked, like if I was asked about Mandy and somebody said, would you die for her, I would say absolutely. I mean, she's the love of my life and I care for her deeply. And I, I believe that God has sent me into her life to be her protector and, and, and a representative of who God is to her. And because Jesus died for her, I should also be willing to do that for her. That's not a problem. Many of us, if we were asked about our faith, we would say that we would die for our faith. If somebody held a gun to your head and said, do you deny Jesus? If we're a believer in Him, hopefully the answer would be, no, I don't. He's my Lord and my Savior. But I want to submit to you, the irony is that 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 kind of death is actually easier to do than the daily kind of death. And what we're called to in this Christian life, in this covenant relationship with Him, is a daily dying of ourselves. That, by the way, is what makes marriage so difficult, and that's, by the way, what makes following Jesus so difficult. But both are worth it. See, we need to be willing, as people who represent this name of Jesus, to represent him even when it means damage to our comfort and damage to our reputation. Because every single day, you and I are called to die to ourselves so that we might find life in Him. And so if we don't understand why the disciples would rejoice over being dishonored, it's it's because we haven't understood yet what it means to bear the name of Jesus. And we've probably considered other things as being better news to us than belonging to Him and bearing this name please know that there is nothing greater that God can do for you. There is nothing greater that He could give you, no circumstance that He could bless you with that is greater than belonging to Him and having His perfect Son as your King and representative. See, the more we have that in mind, The more we understand this, the bigger the good news becomes to us, the more the gospel becomes real and true in our experience, and the more that we long to live it out and to tell everyone about this great life that's true because of Jesus. What I want to leave you with, and just as we respond together, I want to ask, is this pattern happening for you? Is this becoming more and more true of your life? hope that it is, because we should be people that are not ashamed to bear the name of the one who bore our sins for us. So we're going to respond, and we're going to ask God to make that true of us, and we're going to ask him to forgive us if it isn't, and to lead us into a new reality. Father, we thank you that you did not withhold any good thing from us, the most good thing that should have been withheld. suffered the fate that we should have suffered. And in his suffering, we are healed. And we are forgiven. And we are brought in anew as new creations to be part of this new reality. God, thank you for that. And forgive us when that isn't the most real thing in our world. The most real thing when we get up in the morning. Father, I pray that that would become more real to us. And then in its, in its truthfulness for our lives and our experience that, that we would then become witnesses of those things. And, and people would understand those who are part of this family called Cultivate Church, those folks, yeah, they talk about Jesus a whole lot. And sometimes it's uncomfortable, but they live it too. And there's something attractive about the way that they live that could only come from a source that I've never known. And we would say, yes, that source is Jesus. Help that to be true of us. And we'll trust you and give you the credit for it. In Jesus' name.